study God's gospel intentionally. We were over halfway through. We come this morning to a theme. So I'm tracing a theme. This is not an exposition per se, but rather a thematic or a topical subject. And over the next several weeks, I want us to think about the way that we relate to each other. Let's think about church life, body life, community life, and what that means. So we're in Ephesians chapter 4 to begin. I'm getting over a cold. Um, it was pretty rough, but I survived. And I'm glad to be able to be here with you this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 30. Hear this well-known passage. Ponder it with me. Verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's read into verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. This is God's word. Father God, we thank you for the privilege of assembling. We consider it, we consider it, Lord, not only a joy, but a responsibility. Father, you're testing us, trying us, growing us, stretching us. Father, we thank you. Part of that is just being together, Lord, to help us to be together well. Father, I pray for growing affections for one another. Pray that people who come into this place who come away saying, Oh, how they care for, how they love one another. Father, I pray that even as our thoughts focus on the coursework of Jesus Christ at the end of our service, we pray that it would not be the end of our learning. We pray that we continue learning about you and about your affections for us, translating that into affections for one another. Father, I do pray for the needs that are here. I know that there are health needs, there are emotional needs, there are spiritual needs, there is lack, and there is deficit, and there is pain. Father, you get a group of folks like this together, and, and Lord, you know those needs, and you see them. And Father, I thank you that you are Jehovah Jireh, the God who sees and provides, that you're the all-sufficient one, and so, Lord, we come as humble children before you, pleading for help, for strength. Father, I pray that you would grant us the ability to trust you and rest in you. Father, I pray now for the ability to communicate clearly to your people. We want more of you and less of me, and so, Father, I pray for your help. Give me the ability to hear from you share it with this glorious group. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Often use this little ditty, living above the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. Living below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. When I say that, instinctively, we smile. I mean, innately, we know deep down inside, there is a truth about that. We love to spend time, we love to think about those whom we love, 
story. And over the next several weeks, I want us to think about that different story. We smile at that expression because it charts our hearts. Getting along with other believers, navigating relationships, managing friendships, resolving conflict, caring deeply for each other is no easy task. And as the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we are not prone towards harmony. We are not prone towards harmony. In Genesis 3, the book of beginnings, the fall of mankind is charted for us. Man in rebellion falls into the abyss of sin. Interestingly, right away, Adam blames Eve, ultimately God. Eve blames the serpent. And our standard MO method of operation is set. We will assign blame to someone else, just not ourselves. And so the book of beginnings becomes the sad story of rivalry, jealousy, pride, murder, rage, and lust. Really sad story. The light shines in the darkness. Although God's creation is marred and mutilated by rebellion against the Creator, we are given a promise the promise of a Redeemer, one who will come, will come and restore all things, one who will come and take this upside down world and turn it right side up. The length and the breadth and the depth of God's law is bound up. Two main ideas love God and love people. That's the challenge for us. And I've said it before, it's so simple, it's not rocket science, but oh, how we struggle, don't we? How we struggle to love God, honor God, reverence God, fear God, to find delight in one another. We live between two worlds. We know that. We know that. The good news of God's rescue efforts is that His sacrifice makes our relationship possible, this new dynamic possible. But we live still between two worlds what is the already and what will be the not yet. And so to come to Ephesians chapter 4 and hear this prescription, to hear what God expects of the way that we relate to one another is very, very impossible. It seems like an impossible dream, apart from the gracious work of God, constantly, incessantly, on our hearts. I mean, to be free from bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking, to put it all away with all malice, that seems so difficult, particularly in a world that's saturated with that. I've enjoyed the honor of shepherding the flock of God for almost 30 years, and I love the task dearly. I don't want to do anything else. On a certain level, I can't do anything else. I feel a kind of dreaded awkwardness. I love the Church of Jesus Christ. I love the local assemblies of God's people that are meeting all around His great harvest field. Ministry to the Fellowship of Redeemed consumes my heart, encourages my spirit, engages my mind. I am not a casual observer to the local church. I have great affection for the body of Christ. Guarding, guiding, correcting, teaching God's people the truth of God is my life's work. 
Here in verse 31, there is this dirty half dozen that is listed for incineration. Ephesians needed to take out the trash. We need to take out the trash. Little description is necessary. Illustrations of anger and bitterness are all around us. The Kino Post has classified ad this past week. Wedding dress for sale, never worn. Will trade for 38 caliber pistol. It's everywhere. You don't have to look long. Believers, according to the truth of this passage, are to have no business being bitter. We're to make a break with all cunning, backbiting, profane speech, smoldering resentments, and unwillingness to forgive, harsh feelings. All of that is inconsistent with our law. So therefore, believers that are sour and crabby or repulsive in their natures are in embarrassment in the name of Jesus Christ. Having been forgiven an unrepayable debt, the cross of Jesus Christ, the offenses that we must endure from others, yes, even other Christians, should pale in comparison. You talk about a momentary light affliction. Part of it is that it is so small in comparison to our cosmic rebellion against God. When we understand this, our Christian pilgrimage takes on a new lightness and a new joyfulness. Be careful of thinking, brothers and sisters, that once we are converted, that we have a totally new situation and that there are no other battles to fight. Even though God brought his people, Israel, into the promised land, they still had battles to fight. So as I think, wrongfully and biblically, and convince ourselves that when I came to Christ, it was supposed to be over. It was a one and done. And positionally it was. Praise the Lord for that. But practically it was not. You need only read your Bibles to know that that's the truth. Practically. We are being sanctified and cleaned and set apart and uniquely changed and grown up by Him. While some Christians grow, others mostly grow. There are some that are agreeable, deliciously so, and others that are mostly angry. For some, it seems they're long on consternation and short on compassion and care for another. Seasons of my life, why there have been times where I have been more stunted and less joyful, why I've been more brittle and less pliable. So, in order to ensure that there is a growth in grace, local assemblies were to be led by men who were qualified for leadership. First Timothy 3, Titus 1. List the qualifications, the characteristics of those that would give form to the life of the church. Bishops, shepherds, elders, the term that you want to use, they're largely interchangeable. Must be temperate, of good behavior, not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome. Each of these characteristics stands in contrast to fragility. The character of a peacemaker comes forth. And then from Titus 1. Leaders were to be not quick-tempered, not violent, but rather, in contrast, sober-minded and self-controlled. 
the well-being of this church, any church, depends upon winning the battle against these kinds of besetting sins. This does not speak of sinner's perfection, but rather it speaks of anger and anger outbursts as more the exception than the rule in the lives of these individuals. Things that are common to man must be uncommon among the growing followers of Jesus Christ. Give you one illustration from the greatest book beside the Bible ever written, Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, you need to. Even if you need to get the comic book version, get it. And in that book, there is a character named Mr. Feeblemind. He's been rescued from the giant slave good. He's encouraged in his journey with the pilgrims, but he complains. And this is what he says I am a man of weak and feeble mind. I shall like no laughing. I shall like no gay or bright attire. I shall like no unprofitable questions. I am offended with that which others have a liberty to do. And he concludes this way, Sometimes when I hear someone addressing me, Lord, it troubles me so because I cannot do so too. And quote. Mr. Feeblemind, we have some here. There have been times in my life I've been Mr. Feeblemind. So I'm talking about something I know something about. If the joy of the Lord is our strength, then why are some of us so very weak? Why are some of us so difficult to get along with? I wrote this down this past week. I don't want to be feeble-minded. I don't want to be thin-skinned, easily angered, quick-tempered, on-edged, long-faced, and hair-brained. But I will be, unless God is much at work. As I decrease and he increases, I will be exactly what I've spoken of. May I ask you this question, brothers and sisters, from a caring, shepherding pastor's heart? Are you easy to offend? Are you easy to put on your ear, kick off? Are you often frustrated? Does it take a lot to get you mad, or is it very, very easy to bother you and upset you? Asking questions like that, I think, are a great diagnostic tool to understanding our own hearts. So if there are symptoms of this, if verse 30 of 31 of Ephesians 4 looks a lot like you, then is there a root cause? I've got a second heading that I'm going to lay over a few verses the deeper spiritual cause, the deeper spiritual cause. We must ask ourselves, why am I so brittle? Why am I so often angered and lean of soul and fragile in relationships? Apart from the symptoms, and so we've spoken of the symptoms, is there a cause? What's the very root of this crippling condition of fragility? I think that verse 30 helps us amazingly. And I know that it's well known, and I know that it's one of the sort of go-to passages regarding spiritual life, but don't miss it. Don't miss it because it's been common to you. Verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Paul is warning the Ephesian believers with apostolic authority, saying, Don't grieve the cow. Don't distress or make sad or make heavy God the Spirit who dwells within the people of God. We know it, don't we? That conversion, God took up residence within us and came to dwell inside of us. 
God the Spirit to come alongside her, spoken of in John 16, has come to take up residence, to camp out forever, to counsel, convict, confirm. And so to grieve the Holy Spirit is to make sad, if you will, this language that we understand humanly speaking, though it's not exactly true, to make sad God the Spirit. Are you spying, making sad, making heavy the Spirit of God that is within you? Are you constantly overruling the impulses that He sends your way? This is really a recipe for spiritual heart disease. I mean, it's like, man, you just want to take a bite of chips to go watch something. Your wife comes with a bowl of grapes, and there's this great exchange that goes on. It's really what we're talking about. You're gorging yourself on chips, but he's offered you healthy fruit. So what we're doing as we grieve God's spirit is that we're saying no to God. I know that this is the impulse. I know this is what I'm feeling. I know that this is your counseling ministry. I'm, I'm sensing this clearly. My response is no. I'll update the system tomorrow. That's the point of the text. Is God the Spirit grieved because you're constantly showing that you love His world more than Him? What does it look like? Well, I wrote down a few illustrations. When you sit down and read a romance novel but have left your Bible unopened and unread, when you will not even consider a season of prayer or a prayer meeting but you have ample time for Netflix, when consistent Christian fellowship and worship gets to squeeze at any time that the kids call and the creek rises, when, you, when he calls you into the hard work of community and you continue to live in isolation on your Isle of one, because I am a rock and I am an island. God's choice of the word grieve is a poignant one. It denotes a form of discomfort or pain. This is like the pain that Jesus illustrates when he comes to the, the hill outside Jerusalem and he begins to weep over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you the way a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, protecting and guarding and preserving, but you would not. See, Jesus sees 78. He sees the hordes, the Roman soldiers, Aspasian and Titus, he sees the destruction of the city that would not have God rule and reign. There is grief. God grieves for our sins. The infinite creator who rules all things has determined, amazingly, not to force people to follow and obey him. He, he grieves over the choices he's allowed us to make. Understand that God's not being petty or insensitive. He grieves for our sins. He will allow a thinness of soul and a lack of true communion because of our refusals to obey. Joy and courage and strength drain away as we play with our handheld idols and play in our muddy puddles when he offers us a weekend by the sea. We could walk and talk with him in the pool of Eden's garden, but we hide with our leaves so prickly bushes. Spurgeon says this, Sin everywhere must be displeasing in the spirit of holiness, but sin in his own people is grievous to him in the highest degree. 
He will not hate his people. That's so that's great news for us. He will not hate his people, but he does hate their sins. And he hates them all the more because they nestle in his children's bosoms. The Spirit would not be the Spirit of truth if he could approve of that which is false in us. He would not be pure if that which is impure in us did not breathe. Just let that soak into your mind's mind. But let that saturate deep down. For some of us, this weakness, this brittleness, this fragility, we're grieving and stymieing the work of God's Spirit. That's why we are so very weak. Brought an illustration. It's tough to find a green leaf this time, so I tore this off my wife's bay leaf tree. It's a green leaf. I take the green leaf, bang it up, I pick it up, boom, bounces right back. All the parts are there. Do it again, do it again, it's resilient, it's bouncy, gloriously green. Brought another leaf. Rick wondered why I was playing in the snow today. I put outside the parsonage. It's another leaf. You heard it, didn't you? Yeah, that's not a good sound. I won't put it up. Pieces are coming off. I don't make a mess of bottles, so I'm just going to put it down here. Well, you get the point. What's the difference in the two leaves? It's moisture. It's moisture. One has retained moisture. Water, H2O, and the other one is bereft of it. And so for that reason, as it is stretched and tried, pieces come off. I think it's a beautiful illustration of what happens within the human heart. When, when you enjoy the life-giving, vibrant flow of God the Spirit, and He is watering you from the inside out, you have a bounciness, very there I mentioned Tigger and his bounciness. There is a vibrancy and a vitality, a pliability that is a part of your life. But if God the Spirit's ministry, if the water of God the Spirit, his ministry has been staunched off through your decisions and choices. Different story. Different story. Another well-known verse that I would commend, I think goes hand in hand with this. First Thessalonians 5.19. Paul, this challenge to the church of Thessalonica says, do not quench the Spirit. God the Spirit spiritually hydrates us. There is this flow of vitality that comes to us through God the Spirit's ministry. And without His ministry, we are in a dry and thirsty land. We find ourselves parched. We find ourselves giving away pieces of our mind that we could not afford to. So, my my hypothesis is that at the, at the heart of this brittleness is the impeded ministry of God the Spirit. God is so gracious to allow us, because He hasn't made us into robots, and He hasn't, hasn't made us into puppets. He allows us to make choices. He calls us, He bids us, He moves us to Himself, but we can say, no, thank you. I want to do my thing. How's your thing working out? And one final point that I want to make this morning, because we'll continue this over the next two weeks, Lord willing. One final point, because I was looking for a case study. I was looking for a text from God's Word relationally about the local church. And I thought 
thought about the contention between Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts. I thought about Paul's indictment to Peter, who stood him to the face in the book of Galatians. I thought about Diotrephes and his love of preeminence in 3 John. But I landed on Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And I closed with this Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. I've read this passage numerous times over the years to people in my office who are struggling to go on with other believers. So, thirdly and finally, a case study to consider. Thirdly and finally, a case study to consider. Listen to the Apostle Paul, same theme, different passage. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, so he's got a heart, the heart of a shepherd. So, an angry guy, he's not reactive, this is not a knee jerk thing for him. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown. He's commending them, spoonful of sugar. Makes the medicine go down. He gives them counsel. So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Then in verse 2, things go a little sideways. I implore Eodia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Just so potent. What he does, he, he isolates in this church of Philippi. Philippi, Philippians is about joy. It's about joy in suffering. It's about joy in pilgrimage. It's about joy in the journey. But he identifies a situation in the local church that other folks would know about. Two gals, Yodius and Syntyche. Not common names today. I love what Jackson Dahl does with the passage. He renames them as Odious and Syntyche. <laughs> Odious and Syntyche. Some issues. But we don't know what the issue is. We don't need to know what the issue is. I could, of course, speculate. I've wondered over the years was someone else's dish taken first at the potluck supper? I mean, was a, a choice in the marketplace to bring something to local assembly? Was, was one accepted and the other one not? We don't know what the issue is about. We know that they are believers, we know that they have served one of the past. And he calls them to be of the same mind, to be of the same heart. How does that happen? It happens when we are together under the counsel of the same God. When God the Spirit is at work in our hearts and our minds. When deep down inside we are responding to his encouragement, his counsel, his conviction, we are of the same mind. Again, it goes back to this spiritual dynamic. Doctrinal differences, doctrinal issues rarely divide local churches. Personality issues usually divide churches. Sin separates us, it isolates us, it makes us brittle, it leads to breakdowns, crack ups, and blowouts. If God the Spirit's ministry is being quenched, thinness is a reality. Liability of our hearts is the ongoing work of God's grace. And when we see it, and when we say it, and when we savor it, we ought to see it as a good gift from a great God. Because we are not prone towards harmony. We are not prone towards shalom. Sometimes the local church looks like a collection of porcupines that you're herding into a corner and there's all trickles and stains. But oh, how glorious to see the Church of Jesus Christ loving each other 
things God calls us to. I close with this. Justification by faith is not the end of the Christian life, says Jim Biff. He says it's the beginning. It's the continual energizing force from what comes next. God does not take us out of the world after he saved us. He sends us back into the world. He does not take away all of our problems, trials, and conflicts. Rather, he turns them into occasions of spiritual growth. This is the doctrine of sanctification and growth. Wow. Three summary truths. Relational, quagmires, stalemates are symptomatic of a deeper issue that has been left unresolved. It won't be resolved apart from God's Spirit's work. Secondly, growing relationships with people is dependent upon a growing relationship with God. If you do not love other people, I've got news for you. You don't really love God. You cannot have it one way. It's not like, I love Jesus, I just can't stand this church. Jesus has united himself to a body called the church, and he calls us into that body. You can't just be in love with Jesus and not like Jesus' people or his starts making fun of my wife and I have an issue with me. Can't be dissing my bride, right? That's the way it is with Jesus Christ. Thirdly and finally, the only true means of human reconciliation is found at the foot of the cross. The only true means of reconciliation, the only authentic and genuine means of drawing us together us, I mean, folks I love and care for here. It's found at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the only way for God to herd together a bunch of cats like us and make us one body. It's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for time together. Father, I pray that this was not wasted. Father, with those with ears to hear, I pray that they would hear what you communicated through your word to our hearts. I pray that, Lord, even as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's table, so, so very appropriate for us today. For surely there is a great need for restoration, great need for confession, great need, Lord, for love and for affection for one another. Lord, I pray that I, in some small way, might lead the way into this resilience. Father, I know the work that you've done in my heart, and thank you for seasons of humbling. I pray, Lord God, that you use me that others would follow as I follow Christ. Where I don't follow Christ, I'll follow. Father, I pray that you would do a special and certain work. And we thank you for time together. Pray that our worship of you would continue in this day. It's not the Lord's hour, this is your day. He has followed this in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. Amen. Brothers, would you come? We're going to move right into our Lord's table.